G'day, John. How are you doing? Going great. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, good to, good to have you on the uh, on the show here. So, um, yeah, today we have uh, John Giles uh, out of Australia. So for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I've been in IT for uh, perhaps uh, a little bit more than half a century, started as a developer, um, and then uh, got passionate about data modelling uh, a few decades ago and uh, continue to be uh, enthused uh, by it. And I guess one of the things that uh, Joe has come up is, is, uh, is there still value in data modelling? And uh, my answer is a, an enthusiastic yes. This is awesome. Yeah. And I, and I got, I think I, I found out about you. I'm not sure who recommended your book, The Nimble Elephant. Uh, it might've been in one of my Slack groups, but um, I read it and I was hooked and I reached out to you and said, yeah, I mean, if you're open to uh, having a discussion, I'm happy to do that. I thought it was one of the best books I've seen on data modeling and your book, Elephant in the Fridge is, um, you know, an, an, another awesome book. Uh, you know, these are two wonderful books that I think are just a rarity in the industry. So thanks for writing them, first of all. So. Thank you, Joe. Yep. And hopefully, and I have had a little bit of feedback that it's not got just technical content, but uh, hopefully right. is um, uh, readable. It's, uh, I share a few stories and a, a joke or two on the way. Oh, that's what I like about it. I mean, the, the, your writing style and the way you think it's, it's very um, conversational, but in a way that uh, when, when you read it, you can, you can tell that you uh, have really thought about these ideas too it's not like you're just uh kind of pontificating uh actually uh you have a sense of humor when you write which is uh kind of kind of rare for uh for data books uh in general so so thanks for that i i, I do like having I, I do like uh laughing when i read it's fun so <laughs> that's cool um yeah but with data modeling I mean, let's go back to kind of the beginning i mean you've been in it say for um half a century almost and uh, and you got into data modeling a, a few decades ago. Like what? And that's a that's a long storied career to begin with. But what made, was that transition into data modeling? What 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 was that spark? Okay, I'll, I'll perhaps take, uh, if I may, uh, please, Joe, two ends of uh, a continuum or close to the end. Yeah. Uh, earlier on, um, a lot of data modeling uh, related to physical typically relational uh, table design um, and some developers with, with some merit would say, look, um, if they can see in their mind's eye what the physical uh, data base, uh, data structure is going to be, why spend time getting a modeling tool? Let's just uh, you know, create some tables and in certain circumstances, there's actually merit uh, in that perspective. But that is, if you like, focused, uh, single project, uh, physical. The other end of the scale, I guess, which I'm seeing more and more, is where you need to actually share data. You need to integrate data. Um, and uh, Joe, you're from the United States. Um, there's an initiative that started almost 20 years ago NIEM, NIEM, the National Information Exchange Model. Now, it's not a data model in a relational term. It's not entities, attributes, and relationships in an ERD. It's XML with a JSON um, equivalent. Uh, it's an exchange model where various uh, United States government private uh, enterprises need to exchange data. And it, it, 
might uh, be interesting reading for the people who mm. uh, join the podcast, but that's, if you like, an American example of uh, sharing data. So that that's at a totally different scale to a project. Interesting. I guess what what are some of the impacts of sharing data that um, you wouldn't quite uh, get with maybe a you know a single project physical physical modeling approach? Like why would we need to take a different approach with data modeling when we're sharing data? Right. Okay. Well, uh, a story uh, for, coming out of a tragedy. Um, the US and Australia and other countries uh, have wildfires. I believe, particularly is it your southwest down California direction, you have bad fires. <clears throat> we likewise have fires. We had a bad one. And um, just in one afternoon, about 170 people died. Um, so put that in America's population, that's probably the equivalent of 3,000 Americans dying. Mm -hmm. um, so it was big, it was bad, and there was a an inquiry, not, not um, witch hunt, uh, right. but just to see what we could learn and do better. So to cut a long story short, human-to-human -human exchange as well as computer-to-computer -computer exchange, um, one participant called fire trucks uh, appliances, uh, another participant called them tankers or slip-ons. Tankers are the big ones. Slip-ons is where you slip on a water tank and pump onto a four-wheel drive tray. So, in the middle of the crisis, they were tripping over uh, terminology um, and exchange of data. Uh, and when you've got lives at stake, you can't afford to have this. So they wanted uh, the Australian equivalent of your NIEM, uh, but for fires uh, to avoid uh, tripping up and um, misunderstanding on terminology and have efficient, consistent, repeatable exchange of data. Yeah, I think when we uh, when we first met, you were kind of going through some examples too. Maybe for the audience, can you go through some of the examples uh, with the uh, the uh, story about the fires? I think it was really interesting when um, people would call things certain, uh, I guess, things, right? But but it was very confusing for maybe some people who weren't uh, familiar with that type of terminology, and it. it, it uh, uh, very possibly, you know, um, it frustrated people at a minimum, it sounded like, but it also may have prolonged, uh, you know, that, that whole incident. Yes, yes. So uh, the actual story from the fires is an incident controller uh, said to one individual, how many fire trucks have you got? And he says, oh, we don't have fire trucks. We've got appliances. Um, he turned with a level of frustration and a little bit of colourful language. <laughs> and he said to another agency, he said, how many fire trucks or appliances do you have? And the, the response, we have neither. We've got tankers and slip-ons, which do you want? And his, um, I, I still love his response. He says, I don't care what you bleep well call them. How many trucks that can squirt water have you got? <laughs> um, so uh, we, we lightheartedly called them water squirting vehicles. That, that didn't <laughs> stick, um, but it broke the ice on uh, tension amongst people. Yeah. 
I mean, bring it back to the enterprise, though, right? I mean, this is something where I, I think we we see this often. Uh, I know, you know, the, the classic example is customer, right? So you walk in <laughs> any co- company, and there's probably a, a you know, uh, I, I've I've never seen one definition of a customer really stick, uh, and normally there's a bunch of interpretations of that depending on what department you're talking to or who in a department you're talking to, and and so forth, and kind of brings it back to you know the notion of. Um, not just physical data modeling, but maybe something higher level, uh, you know, maybe, um, you know, kind of uh, cuts across a lot of uh, different silos, maybe. So, yep. yep. So, uh, I'll, I'll run with the example, thank you, Joe, of customer. Um, I did some work relatively recently for a, um, a life, life insurance, health insurance uh, company. It not only provides insurance for medical bills, hospital bills, but it also actually provides uh, dentists and optometrists under their banner at discounts So, and, and aged care facilities. So you ask them, what's a customer? One answer is uh, the person paying the bill for the health insurance policy. And then you say, okay, but what if that's granddad because he's generous um, and uh, the actual beneficiaries can't afford it. Are the beneficiaries the customers? Um, and they go to the dentist. Mum is there and a child is in the dentist's chair. Who is the customer? Is it mum or the child? Um, and then, excuse me, please, you're taking the uh, aged care example. Is uh, You've got uh, an unfortunate example of a, a resident who's got uh, Alzheimer's. Um, are they the customer or is it the person who's acting with power of attorney? Um, now, you've got these sorts of questions and the answers are not easy, but my uh, passionate response, uh, Joe, is just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not important. You have to grapple with these things and say, you want to count the number of customers you've got, please let's work together and get an agreed definition of what is a customer. Hard work sometimes. What What is a product um, can also be uh, a... Uh, an interesting debate, but if you're going to get meaningful results, for example, from a an analytics platform, is is Joe you need absolutely need technology experts that can handle big data and have uh, performant responses. Please, I am not downgrading the huge value of the technical skills required, but it needs to be balanced or matched uh, with people who can work with the business to uh, get agreement on uh, the things you're counting, the things you're analyzing. That's interesting. It's something I've been thinking about a lot too, the um, sort of this modeling across the uh, the life cycle of data and um, you know, kind of where it hits different, um, you know, processes almost, right? And and different processes might require different ways of uh, morphing the data for its particular use case, right? But this is where I think, you know, if you're if you're assigned to a certain process, maybe that's um, you know, writing an application that processes claims, for example, but that data also might be used in a data warehouse down the you know down line. What I've noticed, and I'd love your take on this. Um, it seems like people just they're myopically focused on the physical aspect of modeling that that claim processing application 
and not considering the, uh, you know, the upstream or downstream consequences of, of that data. It's like what I need to do today to get this thing out, kind of treating it like a, like a single project, like you say, but I think also ignoring the um, uh, sort of the continuum of that data that, you know, kind of flows like water, uh, so to speak, um, you know. It, yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm enjoying this conversation. My mind's jumping in multiple directions. Okay. Processes and domains. Uh, I believe mm, you know yeah. Larry Burns quite mm -hmm. well. Yep. Uh, I have huge respect for Larry. Delightful guy. Yeah. Um, he tells the story, and I'm just taking this, where one business domain uh, related, and I think it related to um, heavy vehicles, uh, trucks. So one was sales of um, warranty type uh, products. So that was, if you like, the upfront sales. But later you have claims against um, uh, def defects in the trucks and uh, the two parts of the business thought they were using the same language to refer to uh, these uh, warranties and claims and things, but they weren't. Um, and now he tells the story better than me, <clears throat> but I guess what I'm trying to say, Joe, is you can carve the world. Let's take human beings. You can carve them according to young and old or rich and poor <clears throat> or English speaking and non-English speaking, all sorts of ways you can carve the world. Um, similarly, when you talk of domains, two of the ways you can carve the business, one is, well, I'm going to table three, one is business processes. Another is, if you like, the departmental view. Um, you've got HR, you've got accounts, etc. Um, but the way that I find often really helpful is to have data domains. So if you've got the concept of a customer or a warranty or a vehicle or an asset or whatever, um, these concepts span business processes. So if you can have a data view of the enterprise that can help different processes and different departmental views communicate and share data, uh, that's that's massively valuable. I'm going to throw in something and you can we can pursue it further if you like, is people say, oh, yes, but how long does it take to develop one of these uh, views of the enterprise data? And the answer is it can take years and years and years. But uh, the analogy I use is if you have a town plan for a city that you plan to build, um, you can come up with a rough schematic town plan um, in days or weeks um, and it won't go down to excruciating detail joe it's just a town plan right. and i use the the phrase sometimes joe a data town plan because uh, some people if you talk of conceptual data models, there's all sorts of debates about yeah. a conceptual data model. So I try to defuse and say, let's have a data town plan with just enough detail to make the conversations and thought processes effective. And you can do a data town plan in days or weeks. For the audience out there, how can they do that? I think that this is this is this is one of the nuggets, and this is uh, 
when you first mentioned this to me the last time we spoke, I, I thought this was um, uh, pretty brilliant and would be immensely useful. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. How do you do it? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to uh, introduce one of my favorite topics, which is data model patterns. Um, and again, um, two American authors, David Hay and Lynn Silverstone. Uh, David Hay, mid-1990s, published a book on data model patterns. Lynn Silverstone followed a few years later. Um, and these data modeling patterns, what I love about them is they can be embraced by the technical people. You can actually implement these things, uh, but you can also talk to the business about them. They understand what a product and a customer and a supplier and an asset is. Going back to customer, you, 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 Joe, you're going to have to have some debates. Um, but what I find is if you take a, if you like, a palette, of these data modeling patterns and just introduce them in a non-technical way to the business. You say, you've got assets, tell me about the assets. Oh, we've got these and these. And the data modeler says, oh, I've got subtypes here. Um, and the, the data modeler's thinking in uh, supertype subtypes. The business is just talking in terms of classification of its things. Mm -hmm. Have that conversation. Find out about the types of customers, types of products, types of assets, etc., and then how they interrelate. Um, and I sometimes, Joe, talk of a model on a page. It's just a schematic. Um, and in, in uh, my book, um, The Elephant in the Fridge, there's some examples there. Just an A4 page. I'll, I'll tell a, a quick delightful story. One of Australia's police forces went through this sort of exercise. Uh, it was a colleague, a friend of mine, who ran the exercise. It wasn't me. And they loved it so much. Back in the days when people had mouse mats, um, they actually made a mouse mat um, from this model on a page, and it was used to communicate the core uh, assets of this police force. And it could be done. It can be done quickly. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I actually um, had come across the notion of patterns uh, from reading um, uh, your books, and it feels like the the you know, and I, then I you know started reading the um, you know the data modeling patterns books, and these uh, uh, are um, was data modeling our resource books or whatever they you know, on Wiley, but these are fantastic resources. I mean, it's sort of a cheat code in a way. I felt like because. Uh, um, instead of going around, you know, you know, investigating the business, I mean, and I, I think what you're what you're alluding to is uh, with these patterns. It's not like a retail business um, is fundamentally different from another retail business. I mean, there's there's certain operations that are pretty core to these types of businesses. If you're if you don't fit these patterns, I would I would suspect you're either um, you know that smart and have considered a new business model that doesn't exist in the world, or you're crazy, one of the two. Um, so, uh, but but as you point out, and I, you hit on this a lot in the nimble elephant, especially where it's just you know use the patterns. These are recognized ways of uh, you know viewing uh, just how different things interact with each other. And the cool thing is, you had a few examples where uh, I can't remember off, off the top of my head, but there were, there were some patterns that translated. Uh, between um, industries, even uh, you, you simply just drew the lines differently, and it was like, okay, that's that works too. So, yeah. So, oh boy, lots of responses to that. 
Firstly, um, just the published works of just David Hay and Lynn Silverstone, if you put them in a pile, it's about 2,000 pages worth mm-hmm. of reading. And, and I, I'm probably a crazy sort of bloke. I've read them. <laughs> um, most people wouldn't. So um, if um, you go to my uh, website, uh, www.country. Uh, e.com.au share it with your uh, your folk um, there is a free download uh, of a few dozen pages that uh, is a succinct summary of the patterns so if you like for many people joe that will be enough uh, sure. that will get them going they can engage with the business and talk at that level um, if they want to drill deeper, I, I really encourage people who are passionate about this to buy the books uh, by uh, David and Len. Um, but there, there's a free resource and just a little tangent, uh, one of the modelling tools called Ellie. Uh, if you sign up for Ellie, um, you can get a pre-populated version of Ellie with uh, the content from the appendix of uh, the elephant in the fridge, and there you are. It's free. So, um, make a note to put that in the uh, show notes here for the audience. So. Yep. Okay, but I'll comment something else too on patterns. Um, oh, two two comments. Firstly, Helen, uh, as a rule of thumb, says you walk into any organisation in the world, and you've got a pretty good chance that fifty percent of that organization's data needs are common with everybody else. Mm. They've got employees, they've got assets, they've got agreements, um, they've got events, the list goes on. So he's saying 50% of their data is common with everybody else, but they belong to an industry, manufacturing, retail, service provision, health, whatever. If you can get uh, a model that reflects the industry, and please, I'm shying away from big, expensive industry data models. Please, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, Len has a whole book um, on patterns targeted at various industries. Um, and he says you might get to 75% of this organisation's requirements and then the other 25% is what makes them different, what gives them, Joe, a competitive advantage. So, hey, you've got 25% of data modelling still to do, but you get 75% somewhat for free. And this leads me on to the other point. Joe, these patterns are proven. They are flexible. They're robust, they're extensible, but they often have features that you might not need. But I suggest it's easier to start with uh, this rich grab bag um, of options and throw away the bits you don't want rather than start with an empty whiteboard, scratch your head and say, where are we going to start? Right. So, if you bring it back to the, uh, the town plan too, like you wouldn't, you know, you have a concept of what a town looks like. They have streets, you know, municipalities and stuff. You wouldn't just design a uh, um, a town like you would like an amusement park, right? Like that'd be kind of strange. Uh, it wouldn't just fit. People would uh, people just wouldn't understand what you're doing. So, um, yep. 
I'll respond to that and say, just in the physical construction world, um, and, and I'm going to take cars as an example, there's patterns for nuts and bolts and spring washers and screws and everything. Um, if you're building uh, for NASA a Mars rover, you might individually engineer every bolt. You might. Um, but yeah. hey, if you're designing a car, uh, are they going to be uh, 10 mil bolts or 8 mil bolts or quarter inch or whatever your unit of measure is? Um, there's patterns for nuts and bolts and spring washers, screws, Phillips heads, etc. They, they're atomic patterns. Then there are what I call assembly patterns, mm. which is for gearboxes, differentials, uh, universals, the like. And these variations, uh, I sometimes take uh, the universals and and uh, ask people how many um, or differentials, how many differentials in a car, and some will say one, and some will say two, some will say three, and they're all right. Um, a standard car has one diff. A uh, part-time four-wheel drive has two, a full-time four-wheel drive has three, but it's just reusing those assembly patterns in different ways. So, yes, Joe, you can walk into a different industry and there will be patterns at different levels of grain that you can pick up and use. That's amazing. Like I said, it, it opened my eyes to this whole world that, I mean, these because these books were written back in what, the the 90s or maybe early 2000s, right? So, yep, um, 1995, David Hay, um, yeah. a series, a three part series from Lim Silverstone uh, in the 2000s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this sort of coincides too, because what I, what I noticed is around um, like, was the early 2010s or so it felt like data modeling as a practice really changed a bit um so i mean in the uh you know the in the application world um you know relational modeling was kind of what you did for a while and then i think the introduction of NoSQL databases and streaming sort of just uh it felt like you know relational modeling was you know, put on the back burner in, in the analytics world uh you know Dimensional modeling, for example, which had been, uh, I think, very popular, that was also sort of, um, uh, you know, issued. These are physical modeling practices, obviously. Uh, but the, it, but the, what I noticed is it seemed like the whole notion of, of modeling itself uh, sort of became this uh, kind of forgotten art in a lot of ways, right? But then, as I tell people, your, your lack of a data model is still a, a model. It might be a really crappy model, but you're still trying to represent reality or, or some aspect of of what you're trying to do in, in data. And, and so, you know, you, you can reinvent the wheel every time you want to do this or, you know, there, there are practices to do this, but even at what you're describing at a higher level, I mean, these are, these are, in my view, like very lost, but very valuable things. It should be introduced. So, so a couple of quick comments, yeah. uh, Graham Simpson, um, uh, has, uh, produced a book, Data Modeling Essentials, which if people really want to get into data modeling is a, a brilliant textbook. But one of the arguments uh, he uh, proposes, Joe, is that everybody, if you're going to have a developer, everybody does modeling. It's just like building a dog kennel. You might uh, have engineered uh, architect drawings or you might have it in your head if you're building a house you probably want engineers if you're building a dog kennel 
you do have a design. It's in your head. You haven't written on paper, but you do have it. If you've got a, a really good developer and they just start creating some tables, they actually do have a design. It just hasn't been articulated as a data model. Um, but but it is a model. A, a story, a true story, but a sad story. Uh, this goes back, I guess, um, to the value of having data models even in agile projects. So first story is um, a young developer uh, based here in Australia was asked to develop some software for a school. Teachers, students, um, schedules, timetables, that sort of stuff. Now, he was young um, and delightfully naive. He assumed all families had mum, dad, and some kids, and the children uh, all, um, that the whole family lived in the family home, and they all shared the same surname. Okay, uh, life is a little bit richer in than that, uh, but he developed a data model and built some tables. And I'm going to cut a long story short. There was one of the families that attended the school where mum and dad had separated because there was uh, domestic violence was part of uh, the, uh, the situation. Mum and kids were in a refuge whose address was highly protected uh, because you know, people are at risk. Because, long story short, because of this assumption that mum and dad live at the same address and the way it was implemented, uh, this violent individual now had the address of uh, the woman's refuge where his wife lived oh, and all hell broke loose. Um, now, that, that's a bad outcome. So why am I telling this? We go back to data model patterns, uh, the party, party role pattern, that Joe's some people love, some hate. Um, I'm going to put that debate aside if I'm happy for the moment. Um, but it has this flexibility. It says you've got a person. Do they have more than one address? Um, do they have more than one name? Is that address shared by other people? So this, this, these sorts of questions, if this developer had have grappled with the model, uh, I suspect he may have um, realised that uh, his assumption that mum, dad and the kids all share the same surname and share the same address may have been challenged. So, so that's um, a quick story on... Uh, being challenged by the flexibility of the patterns to think about whether a subset will suit you. The other story um, I got from an agile coach, I didn't uh, scrum master, uh, whatever his title was. He was on a project um, and the velocity, the number of points delivered per sprint was uh, reducing. There uh, productivity was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, they said, what's going wrong? Sprint one, they had some physical tables and some code, um, delivered it. Sprint two, new functionality, but some changes to what they'd already built. So they had to change the data structure and therefore recode and retest elements from sprint one. Sprint three changes to the underlying data structure, which meant recoding and retesting elements from sprints one and two. 
sprint four, you can see the pattern. Um, and the uh, the Scrum Master called a halt and he said, we're going to get a data modeler in on the project who will look ahead at least one sprint ahead of where we are, preferably have a, what I will call a town plan, uh, a bit of a vision of where we're going, and their product Productivity went up 13-fold. They delivered 13 times uh, the uh, number of points per sprint on average from then on. Um, can data modelling deliver value? I think so. Right. Yeah, I think so too. It's um, why, why do you think this is so uh, difficult, though, for for uh, data teams and uh, developers to to do because um, I, I, again I I feel like this is this shouldn't be that hard right or, or maybe not hard is the right word but uh, I I would think that uh, um, just being able to, to uh, I, I guess do data modeling in a maybe be a more thoughtful capacity uh, is something that. I would expect people to do, but it, it but it definitely doesn't seem that way from from where I sit. I mean, what are some of the challenges you've seen uh, in making data modeling work? Okay, I think in part, um, I don't know what American universities are like, but Australian universities, um, they either don't teach data modeling, if or if they do, it is terribly mechanical, Joe. First normal form, second normal form, third normal form, uh, which, by the way, isn't uh, fully normalised, but that's another discussion. Um, and that's what they teach. And people go out and think, well, that was useless, um, and throw it in the bin. It's similar um, in the States. It's similar and, to what I've seen. <laughs> right. Um, uh, another thing too, um, and look, I'm I'm not a psychologist or whatever, but I, my observation is that you get some brilliant technical people who feel less comfortable interacting with the business. Mm. You know, they're, they're happy cutting code. Don't put me in front of C-level executives, please. That's not my scene. And Please, Joe, I'm not being critical. We we all come in different boxes, different shapes and sizes. But what I'm saying is that some technical people would rather leave the business interaction to others. So I think that's in part uh, an issue. And then from the other side, I think of one individual who I'm certainly not going to name, but um, he was comfortable interacting with the business but he had never developed anything or been on a development team and he was making decisions and recommendations about concepts that were soft and woolly and fluffy and could not be implemented. Mm. So what's the solution, Joe? You're probably going to smile at this. Data modelling patterns, they're implementable and you can talk to the business about customers' assets, agreements, events, tasks, etc. So uh, I, I think that in part is the answer. But going back, why don't people do it? Uh, they've probably seen examples, Joe, where there's been investment that hasn't delivered uh, tangible value. Um, and they just think, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll do without it. 
I compare, I contrast that with my own experience. Again, this goes back to town planning, Joe, doing enough. And for those who are going to be listening to the podcast, chapter three of The Elephant in the Fridge. Elephant in the Fridge is aimed at the data vault community. If you're not interested in data vault, throw away the rest of the book, read chapter three. It tells you how to do a town plan. Um, but I did some work for a big Australian telecommunications company, worked with one guy. He went to another telco um, and he said, John, I've seen what you've done. Can you come and do it? Now, the earlier telco had had a team of people for five years doing the enterprise data model. And uh, he said, John, I want you to do the same, but for my new employer, and you've got two weeks, and you're doing it on your own. And, and I, I laughed and joked with him. I said, I can save you two weeks by Lynn Silverstone's volume number two. Go to the chapter on telco. Um, it'll cost you $200. Job done. You don't need me. And he laughed. He said, no, come on, John. We'll take you on board, which we uh, did sufficient modelling so that they could have a common foundation for three projects that they were launching in two weeks' time. One of the guys there went to another organisation, um, and uh, this was the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency. It's the register, Joe, of doctors, nurses, chiropractors, dentists, optometrists, etc. cetera. Uh, I assume in the US, uh, people can't just say, I'm a dentist and start practicing. They actually have to be qualified. That would be bad, yes. That's, so. not allowed. That's not allowed here. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, it is America, but you can't do that. Nope. <laughs> um, so they had a register and they needed uh, some uh, data analytics. They said, we need to pull together data. Now, we've got less states than the United States. You've got 50, I think, is it? Um, we, we've got uh, yeah, a lot less than that. But each state uh, had uh, databases and applications, one for doctors, one for dentists, one for chiropractors, um, and... Uh, they had to pull together 80 source systems and produce one consolidated view. Um, and I was given uh, three weeks to do that, and I did it. One of the guys there went to another company, a water utility. So, so telco, health uh, re registration. Now, water utility, one of the guys there saw what I did and he said, um, can you come and spend a few weeks uh, and do a, a town plan for us? Um, and, and Joe, for those who are listening, um, I hope you get the, the feeling, I actually enjoy this. It's fun. You're, you're dealing with the best and brightest um, business and IT, getting them on the same page, they get enthusiastic and they deliver value. That's crazy. And and the thing is, you you look awesome because you're fast. And so <laughs> it's, it's almost like you're too good at your job, but uh, but you're but you're using the patterns, right? So yep, uh, yes, a phrase that uh, uh, um, I guess makes me smile is if you want to see a fast way of doing something, observe a lazy person. 
<laughs> but, but seriously, um, you know, a, a more complimentary thing is uh, if I can see further than some, it's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. Right. Um, uh, so, yeah, use leverage the data modelling patterns, get uh, data modellers on board in your projects, even agile projects. Uh, I told you about the 13-fold increase. Mm-hmm. Um, get people in um, who preferably are familiar with the patterns. If not, as I say, uh, my introduction is free. Um, get it, read it, dig deeper uh, if you want to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I have I have the uh, um, uh, those books on my uh, my my iPad, which is unfortunate because, as you say, there's two thousand pages and. Uh, Reading two thousand pages on an iPad is, uh, I think, a very hateful experience, uh, to put it lightly. Um, so I'm gonna have to uh, go out. I think I'm gonna have to buckle down and get the uh, get the physical books. But um, yeah, it, it, but I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to write those because it's three volumes, uh, yeah. and these aren't these aren't small books. Um, and so, I mean, I've written one book uh, that was 450 pages, and I think that that was uh, that was a lot. But to write that, something that's bigger and times three is uh and and just the thought process because this is all a lot of um you know new thinking back when when these books were written these hadn't you know, nobody had really taken the time i think to dissect what what are the patterns um yep. in a business that's related to data that's monumental stuff so yep yep i, I absolutely take my hats off uh, hat off to uh, people and and i've mentioned david and len but um yeah. for example in the object-oriented community um, there's a lot of talk about patterns. Uh, what is it? Uh, Gamma Helm, Johnson and Vlasides have got design patterns. So they're a different type of pattern. But then there's others within the OO community who have what are closer to data modelling patterns. Mm-hmm. And oh, this is a little tangent. Uh, what what is a data model? Um, I was interacting, Joe. You, you're familiar with this. I was interacting recently with a, a fellow Australian who has uh, taken an interest in data modelling patterns. Now, his focus um, was on uh, patterns for what I would call data warehousing business intelligence, mm-hmm. and he looked at the works of Bill Inman. Ralph Kimball, so you know your so-called three and F, uh, your dimensional. Um, uh, he looked at uh, Dan Linstead and Data Vault. Um, so he came up with I think three different styles of patterns, but they were focused uh, largely on what I will loosely call the data warehousing space. Yeah, um, and, and that is completely legitimate. But then. Uh, Joe, you've got data modelling for information exchange and your American NIEM is a a beautiful example. It's in XML. Um, I've looked at it and there's some aspects of it I think, oh, scratch my head, I might have done it differently. But at least you've got um, uh, something you can start talking about. But that's uh, patterns for exchange then you've got uh, object-oriented development where people might do, for example, UML class models, and the OO people will quite correctly say that a class model and a data model are different animals. 
and yet uh, a number of times I've used a subset of class modeling to capture the thinking for a data model. I know it's that the OO purists will perhaps say, John, you're using that modeling notation for a purpose for which it was not intended. But um, if you've got a modeling tool, um, and uh, there's one that some people might be familiar with, uh, Sparks Enterprise Architect, um, it costs a couple of hundred dollars. It's got heaps and heaps of uh, notations. One of them is class modeling. And for $200 uh, for a seat, you've got a tool that can be used quite effectively for a data model. So, Joe, I've touched on a whole heap of issues there, you know, on data modeling, notation, and what you use it for. Well, and these all have knock-on effects on each other, right? I think earlier we were talking about just the, the, the data lifecycle and the fact that data is not a static thing. What I've noticed is, okay, so in the object-oriented world, you have, um, I don't see too many people using UML these days, but uh, I, I think almost anyone is making applications. Um, you know, they, there's some notion of like, an uh, well, not everybody, but uh, if you're using a lot of popular uh, frameworks like Ruby on Rails, Django, whatever, I mean, these have an object relational mapper, right? Object-oriented notation uh, to translate into a database. And the amount of, uh, I would say, denormalized data that occurs uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, on accident, I would I would hope, but it, it's so easy to do, is um, because these uh, um, object relational mappers are so tied to the database and uh, have have consequences in terms of um, even the uh, you know the views uh, for these applications, right? Some auto view controller or some variant of that. Uh, what often happens is your your the data that's in the transactional database is now. Uh, it's some sort of a form. I'm not quite sure what it is, uh, but there's lots of duplications. Um, you know, at a certain point uh, with scale, your database would probably keel over because it's it's doing a lot of unnatural acts. Uh, you know, but this is but this is the object-oriented world. It allows you to it, you can do this. Obviously, if you're diagramming it out, hopefully you'll avoid these mistakes. But the the consequence of this is typically data warehouse teams uh, analysts pull this data in and try and make sense of it. And uh, geez, lo and behold, uh, why why is data so hard to reconcile now? Well, because upstream, um, it uh, it started out with good intentions and it became a bit of a mess, and here we are today. And so, um, yep. but but what I haven't seen is people don't diagram this typically, right? It's like I need a a new field added to this form. Oh, the easy thing to do is add it to the database so I can populate, uh, you know, the form and and make it work. And that that's. Uh, it's a, it's a level of convenience that I think people don't understand the consequences of uh, what you know what happens. I'm I'm, I'm smiling, Joe. Uh, back um, some decade, decades ago, the 1970s, um, when I was doing a lot of programming, um, I saw people who would design a data structure because the business wanted to report. This is before you had report writers and mm. Tableau and all sorts of things. Um, and they would structure the data structure based on the report that was required. Terribly narrow thinking. And uh, some wise old heads would come along and beat them up and say, no, um, don't design the data structures just for that one report. You know, let's design them around reusable concepts. I think, Joe, 
if I'm hearing you correctly, it's too easy instead of a hard copy report to have a form on a screen and having have a data structure to support the form instead of saying how else might this data be used might somebody else um, uh, have already uh, captured this data and, and look I'll, I'll tell a, a really quick story I, i'm full of stories <laughs> um, but i worked for an airline and two development teams one was recording the skills of the air crew and it went from uh, competency to fly a 747 through to uh, the the people in the cabin. Could they speak Japanese, English, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, whatever? So basically the skills of um, the people uh, who were on board the aircraft. Then there's the HR department who had employees uh, and who's got an accounting degree and who um, can write SQL or whatever. And they said, hang on, we're both recording data about employees and we're both recording data about skills. Why don't we have two, this was uh, IBM's DB2, why don't we have two relational tables, one for employees and one for skills, and two projects share two tables. Um, all it requires, Joe, is the conversation and to realize, for developers to realize they are part of a larger team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you just don't find out until things like that, right? So, but again, hopefully these uh, um, silos get broken down. But I, you know, I was talking to Bill Inman last week. Uh, we were doing a, um, an event in uh, Denver. And uh, somebody asked him, uh, you know, what, what's the biggest uh, struggle he's seen in, in his career? And it's always been the uh, it's kind of the, the separation of the, the business and IT, right? And uh, he actually called it a divorce, so to speak. And I thought that was a bit yeah. of a strong term, but, uh, you know, I think it's not wrong either. Um, yeah, because it, it's, uh, you think a lot of these, just by a simple conversation, you can figure this out, right? This is like a, like a five-minute chat, like, okay, people, skills, whatever. Um, but then it multiplies itself too, because you know uh, Dev doesn't talk to quote data, data doesn't talk to people downstream either, and so it's just this, this um, constant uh, guessing game, and and um, it's because uh, it has interesting consequences. So, yep. so, so one of the things, Joe, I love about Agile is uh, the idea of co-location of the um, the product owner, uh, your, your business people, and the developers. Love it. Um, the danger I see is if they are totally project focused on a single project um, without perhaps just having that short conversation, like the example I just gave of flight crew and employees. Have we got an opportunity mm. for win win for the larger good? Just, just have that conversation. I, I love that. It's a beautiful place to uh, to, to wrap it up too. But yeah, I, I hope that that um, that ideal happens. It, it just because it, if you take a step back and understand that you know the the data model is for the the greater good of, of the organization, you know, cohesive data model that is that's um, something we're striving for. So thanks for the conversation. I, I always I always like talking to you. I feel like I uh, I get smarter and uh, hopefully a bit of your wisdom rubs off. So. 
Uh, well, well, just one parting thought. Yeah, the Getting the enterprise view, I've mentioned uh, emergency response to wildfires. Yeah. What is the organisation? For the answer to that was there was 17 organisations in our part of the world. So hopefully you don't want the ambulance but they are one of the 17. Hopefully you don't want uh, the state police force, but they are one of the 17, okay? So the organisation, the enterprise for emergency response was a virtual organisation that formed for the duration of the emergency. So the answer to that case was the enterprise was much bigger than anyone. And then um, the opposite of that is uh, did some work for a... Um, I'll mention them, uh, Salvation Army, and uh, I'll put it that they had, if you like, the church side and they had the social side. So the question was, are they two separate organisations within one? So uh, without going into the answers to that, because it was uh, shades of grey, um, but what, what I'm, I'm saying, when you talk of the enterprise view, have a talk with the business and get their definition on the scope and defi definition of the enterprise. It might surprise you. Yeah, certainly. And it's always, you know, in, in these conversations I have with um, the business, there's always this, uh, I don't know if you notice this, but it's, it's, there's always like a sentence that somebody says. It's a really subtle thing. So you have to be good at listening, right? But it, but there's always something somebody says. You're just like, oh, that that's the um, that would be important to note, right? Um, so it's it's always like a really subtle thing that kind of changes the dynamic of what you think you're 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 talking about. So I'm I'm about to laugh. Did some work for a big Australian mining company, and it, it, I flew in, and they had scheduled back to back one-hour meetings, four hours lunch, four hours solid for a week. So I had 40 one-on-one -on -one interviews with people. I got to the end of the week um, and I said, because um, my, my thinking was, guys, we should have got together much earlier, but I said, we need to get together and I, I seeded the conversation. I would drop a question in and say, look, I think I may have misunderstood something. I'm hearing something that sounds a little bit different. I was trying to be gentle yeah. uh, and I'd drop it in. It was like pulling the pin from a hand grenade and boom. Um, at, the, at the end of a, uh, a conversation where all of these people were together, one of them came up to me and he said, I have worked for this company for decades and I didn't realise until today that other people saw us differently. Wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So it was a fiery thing, but it was brilliant and a wonderful outcome. That's awesome. Well, John, it's been, it's been a great, uh, great discussion with you. Um, I, I guess for people who want to learn more about you or, or your, your writings, how can they do that? I guess um, the uh, the two books, The Nimble Elephant and The Elephant in the Fridge. Um, my website's got uh, a little bit of uh, free material. Um, T. Dan, uh, the Data Administrator newsletter, uh, just jump on it um, and do a search for Top Down, uh, which is taking the overall business-centric view. You'll find I've got a few articles there. So, so there's there's just some things to perhaps get people going, Joe. Awesome. Cool. And I'll put those all in the show notes.
Well, John, thank you for your time. Um, like I said, I always I always feel like I come away um, you know slightly wiser talking to you. I'm sure um, more conversational to make me that much better. But uh, hopefully, the audience you know learned a thing or two. I think the the notion of uh, data model patterns is just something that I think people need to rediscover. It's, so. Yep. Real good return on investment. And look, thank you, Joe. I've had fun interacting with you. Keep up the good work you're doing in uh, keeping the communication going. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Thank you, Ryan.